What up, guys? How's it going? My name is Steven. I uh, get to direct the Salt Company here. You've met Noel. You've probably met Josiah, who are on our team as well. And uh, if you stay with us, you'll get to re meet some of the other team. But uh, glad you're here this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 51. That's where we're going to be uh, looking at, yeah, a really memorable, powerful psalm. Have you ever noticed how songs actually have, like, power to them? Like they, you can't really remember someone's name after you meet them, but sometimes you hear like a song once and it's like stuck in your mind forever. Songs have power. You, you remember them. Like if I said, just a small town girl. Yeah, you know, if I said, sweet Caroline. Yeah. Anyone, how about this? Blame it all on my roots. Come on, we're in church, people. You country folk. Um, songs bring back knowledge and memory. You know the lines in the song, but more than that, oftentimes they bring back emotion. They bring back feelings. They can transport you, if you will. You hear a song and you remember the first time that you heard it. If you heard Ed Sheeran's You Look Perfect Tonight, you're probably at every wedding you've ever been to in your life. Or maybe if you heard... Hey, baby, I'm not a good singer, but if you heard, hey, baby, yeah, so there you go. You're probably in your mind transported back to a giant stadium filled with a sweaty crowd praying that the Gators make it a good comeback in the fourth quarter. Like, <laughs> you're just asking God as you're singing that song, hoping like there's like magic in Tom Petty. If you were to play for me, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. I'm transported immediately when I'm five years old in an old country Baptist church in Anniston, Alabama, where my dad's a pastor, and we would sing that song at the end of every service, and while we're singing it, I am just like wondering what my mom cooked for lunch. <laughs> and in that moment, I'm, I'm there. But if... You were to play Psalm 51. If you were to take the record out of Psalm 51 and dust it off and put the needle down and begin to play it, I'm sure for David, it would bring him back immediately to the moment where he wrote this song. It's a psalm of deep sadness. It's a psalm of brokenness. But it's also a song of hope and beauty. See, for David, Psalm 51, as he's hearing it play in his mind, as he's remembering the lyrics of the song, he's contemplating not just like how good God is, but also how broken he is. And before we dive into Psalm 51, we need to know something about the Bible that you're holding or you're looking at on your phone or that you'll read on the screen. You need to know something about the Bible. The Bible is a story. It's filled with lots of different people. And oftentimes the people that God uses in this story of rescuing the world are filled with triumphs and great moments and mountaintop moments. Like David, you know, David and Goliath, right? This mountaintop moment of victory and triumph. But the Bible, and this is why I love the Bible. And if you're new to this, you'll find this if you start reading it. Why I really like the Bible is because it's filled with really real people. Like the Bible is not just filled with these highlights 
like your high school football highlights, you know, where you only show the good parts and never the parts where you like tripped over the water boy, you know. The Bible is also filled with lowlights. It's very real. It tells of the people that God uses, but he uses them even though they're broken people. And David is no exception. And behind Psalm 51, it is the lowest of lowlights. It's the lowest of moments for Israel's greatest king. You can read about this in Psalm 11 and 12, but I want to give context before we dive into Psalm 51. You can read about this in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and you don't have to flip there. I'll just kind of recap very briefly what happened. See, there David was. He was king of Israel at the moment, and life is good. He's king. There is peace in the town that he's ruling over in this kingdom. There's peace. He's written a couple top chart hits. Psalm 23 goes viral. He's living life, and he's good. And as his men are off to war, there David up is in the highest highs. He's on the, the palace, and he's looking over his kingdom, and life's good. God has blessed him richly, and there he sees it. Bathsheba. And David doesn't quickly look away or walk away. No, he lingers. And something is rooted deep in his mind, and he can't get over it. He has to have something. He has to have her. And you can read about this where David gives in to his deep brokenness in him and sleeps with Bathsheba. No questions asked. And that's it. Just a simple mistake, and it's buried, and he moves on with his life. So does she, until he gets a knock at the door. It's Bathsheba. David, I'm late. What are you talking about? We're not going anywhere. No, David, I'm pregnant. And this little secret sin that no one else knew about now is starting to bubble back up to the surface. But instead of confessing, dealing with his sin, this is what David does. He pulls out his shovel and he begins to dig deeper. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll cover this up. I'll get... Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who's on the battlefield, I'll get him back home. He'll sleep with his wife that night. And then he'll just think the child is hid. Problem solved. So he does it. Brings Uriah into the palace. Says, hey, go sleep back home with your wife. Bathsheba, enjoy it. He says, no, I can't do it. Supposed to be out on the battlefield. And he has more honor than David does in this moment as just a lowly little soldier. And he refuses. David insists. David even ends up getting him drunk so that he'll do it. But Uriah just ends up sleeping on the floor. And David is faced again with this moment. Do I let this sin bubble up to the surface and confess what I've done? No, no, no. I can dig myself out and gets his shovel back out and he digs deeper. And so what does he do? He sends Uriah back out to the front line of the battlefield and tells his commanding officer, right when they get to the front of the battle, the fiercest part, pull your men back. No questions asked. That's what they do, and Uriah dies. Problem solved. And David goes back to living his life in the high places of palace living, and life is good until he gets a knock at the door again. And this time... It's a guy named Nathan. 
the prophet of God. But David, got a problem. There's this guy in your kingdom. He's done something bad. David's like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. What up, pastor? It's weird that you're at my house. But like, yeah, come in, come in, come in. What's going on? And Nathan's like, yeah, man, we got this problem. See, there was this guy. He's, you know, the wealthy guy down the street? Yeah, yeah, I know him. Well, he's got a ton of sheep, you know, and you know the girl who lives next to him? Yeah, 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 Mary. Yeah, Mary has this one little lamb, okay? He's like, yeah, David's like, I know Mary. Great. He's got this one little lamb, and she loves this little lamb. She raised this lamb like it's her pet. Well, the neighbor was having a guest over, and he wanted to have a feast for his friend, his guest that was coming, but he didn't want to use his lamb, so he actually stole Mary's little lamb and fed it for dinner to his guest. And David, a lover of sheep, because he's a shepherd, <laughs> Psalm 23, you know it. All right. He's ticked off. He's furious. This is wrong. This is, this is unjust. How could someone think that he could do that? David's like, is he, is he even sad about it? Nathan's like, no, man, he doesn't even care. Are you kidding me? You know we need to bring him to justice. He deserves to pay the penalty. He deserves to pay it back. And if he doesn't, he deserves death. And Nathan, in a quiet moment, is like, David. Ah. David, the guy that you're so mad about, it's you. You are that man. And this is when David's high palace comes crashing down to the ground. I don't know if you've ever felt a moment like this in your life. And you built up everything on the outside looking fine, and it all comes crashing down like a house of cards. And this is where David picks up the pen in Psalm 51. And he writes this first line. Read with me, verse 1. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant Compassion, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. What do you do after the worst mistake of your life? That's my question this morning. What do you do when you come face to face with your sin? Because here's the truth. Either you've had that moment in your life and you know what I'm talking about, or you at some point in your life will come to a moment where you feel like you've blown it for good. So you need to know. What do you do when you face the mistakes of your life? And this message is going to be so simple this morning. Like, it's summer B, let's take it easy. Here's, here's what I want to contend to you. What do you do when you come face to face with your sin? What do you do when you face the worst mistake of your life? Here's what you do. You ask God for grace. You ask God for grace. And I'm going to give you an acronym for an acronym for grace. It's summer B, it's okay. For ask. Three points. What does it mean to ask God for grace? A. According to his compassion. S. See that you're broken. K. Know that God can still use broken people. According to his compassion, seeing you're broken, knowing that God can use broken people. Three things, three things to when you ask God for grace. Let's start with the first one. 
David cries out in this very first line, be gracious to me, God. Anyone rocking a King James Bible, Bible this morning? Old, the King James Version says, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. God, be gracious to me. In the moment of his worst mistakes and his biggest mess, he asked this, God, would you forgive me? And here's what I'm curious, why? Why does David feel like he has the audacity after this mistake to ask God to forgive him? Why does he say, God, be gracious to me? Be gracious to me, God, comma. Now, is he asking God be gracious to me according to my long history of faithfulness in the past? God, be gracious to me because I, I usually get it right. No. Does he say, God, be gracious to me because I give you my word, I will never do this again? No. Does he say, God, be gracious to me because I swear on my grandmama's life, I will go to church every single Sunday. David doesn't call upon the character of his past or the promise that he'll have better character in the future. This is all he does, and this is so important. When he calls upon the grace of God, he doesn't call it upon according to his character. He looks to God and says, I'm calling out for grace according to your character. And what is God's character? Look what he says, Psalm 51, we've only got to one verse so far. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Here's my question. David is calling out to a compassionate, kind God. How do you know God is like that? For you in the room who just walked in and you're coming to church and David's calling out to a compassionate and gracious and faithful, loving God. How do we know God's actually like that? Well, this book that we're holding, that we preach from, it's all about revealing who God is and what he's up to. And we see it through all scripture, revealing that this is actually God's character. Probably nowhere better other than Exodus 34, where God reveals his name to a guy named Moses. For the first time in all of scripture, we see just exactly what the character of God is. This is a pivotal moment. And he looks at Moses and says, this is my name. I am Yahweh, Yahweh. I'm the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding with faithful love. This is who I am. And David knows this. And so here's what this means for you right now. This God, who is outside of time, we can admit that, is eternal. And if God is eternal, then his character is eternal. And if his character is eternal, then his compassion and grace are eternal, which means this. Your mistakes will never, ever outweigh or overuse or dry out the mercy of God. There is 
mercy, if, listen, if you walked in here and you've ever made a mistake in your life, here's what I know, there's mercy. How do I know that? Because God is merciful. He's compassionate. He's gracious. And if he's eternal, it goes on forever, God has mercy for your mistakes. Spurgeon put it this way as he's reflecting on this idea. He says, God, obliterate the record. Though now it seems engraven in rock forever, many strokes of thy mercy may be needed to cut out the deep inscription of sin. But then thou hast a multitude of mercies and therefore I beseech thee, erase my sin. God, you have mercy for my mistake. And David knows that according to his compassion. So he asks for grace. And this is good news. It's good news for you. It's good news for me that God is compassionate and abounding in faithful love and forgiveness to us, sinners, broken people. But here's the truth. Many of us won't actually cry out to God for help. We'll never get to a place of Psalm 51 verse 1. God, be gracious to me. Why? Why will many of us live our lives not actually tapping into the most powerful thing in the universe, God's grace? It's because often we don't actually see the depth of our problem. We see mistakes as just mistakes. David had to get to the very core of what was wrong for him to then cry out to God for mercy. So here's the second thing. When we ask for God, we ask according to his compassion, but number two, seeing your broken. Seeing your broken. David cries out to mercy, yes, because he knows God's character and who he is, but he also cries out to mercy because he knows who he is. He's a human. He's broken. He's a sinner. And we read this in the next six verses. Read with me. It says, blot out my rebellion. Verse two, you ready? Completely wash away my guilt. Say guilt. And cleanse me from my sin. Say sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. Say rebellion. And my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil. Say evil. In your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Say judge. Indeed, I was guilty. Say guilty. When I was born, I was sinful, say sinful. When my mother conceived me, surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Here's, here's what's interesting. As you recount this, what, what words did David not use in recounting who he is? He didn't say like, God, I just slipped up a little bit. Have mercy on me. I just stumbled. God, have mercy on me, but like, man, have mercy on the Israel because like, it's not actually all my fault. Let me just like explain the situation a little bit. So I was just like walking there one day. No, that's not what David says. What does he call what he's done? The words that you recited, rebellion, guilt, sin, evil, Verse 5, David gives us an insight, and this is something we call natural sin that we're born into. Verse 5, he says this, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. 
I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David knows something that maybe you actually know. Maybe you've never actually said it out loud. But you know because you know you and you've lived your life. We are all broken. And we were actually born this way. We actually came into this world riddled with the poison of sin in us, breaking relationship from God and breaking relationship with everyone around us. Even the Christ followers in this room, any Christians in this room this morning? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Okay, for the outsider in this room, if you're coming into this like this little family called Salt Church, know this, they're broken. The only thing different about these broke people is they found someone that can fix them. We all are riddled with this poison, a natural bent to not serve God as our master, not to acknowledge him as God. My oven is currently broke. Like, it just doesn't work. <laughs> like, it'll heat up to 125 degrees and that's about it, which could cook nothing. It's been broken for a while. And what we do is we use our little toaster oven. Like we had frozen pizza last night and we had to like jam it in there. It's this big syrup. You're like kind of like squishing the sides to like really get it in there. Or like if we have something big, we walk over to Josiah and Michelle who live on our street and we're like, hey, can we use your oven for, you know, 10 minutes? And I don't know how long things cook. My wife, she's the one doing it. You can tell, probably longer than 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> It's been broken for a while, but I, this weekend, I was like, we're going we're gonna to solve this problem. So I'm like, babe, what's the, what's the serial number on that sucker? I'm going to, let me look up some stuff. <laughs> so I jump on Google. I'm like, how to fix an oven. Article comes up. It's the exact model make. And I'm like, here we go. I got this. I can fix this. And then he goes on to explain, <laughs> in my brain, I don't know how to put this, um, Japanese language that I don't understand called electrical something. I don't, I can't even, see, I can't even describe it to you. It's something about the interior and like wires and cabling. Paul, you could probably help me out. Should have just asked Paul, but like coils and things and circuits. And, and here's what I quickly found. I can't fix this. <laughs> I have to call someone to fix this. This ain't like that like turn it off and on and it's fixed kind of thing. Like when your mom calls you from home because you moved out of home and she's like, hey, the Wi-Fi's out. I think we need a new one. And you're like, mom, just turn it off. She's like, I didn't know it could do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just turn it off, turn it back on. It's going to fix. See, my oven, it ain't that type of broke, okay? It's that needs rewiring, internal change. Something's got to happen. Malfunctioning. I can't fix it myself kind of broke. You need to know something about you. You are the same way. You are broken. And it ain't that kind of just try a good restart, come to college, not this time kind of broke. It's that internal, something's off, needs rewiring, needs someone to come and fix me type of broke. You need someone to save you, which is why you pick this up in David's language, picking back up in verse 7. You see this. He knows this. And I'm just going to kind of breeze through some of this language. Look at verse 7. He says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me 
It's like washing until it's finally clean. You got to do this. Verse 10, if you jump down, he says, create a clean heart in me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12, he says, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Verse 14, save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation. Listen, this is what David is saying. I'm broke. And God, I need you to fix me. Have mercy on me, O God, for my sin. And it's not just surface level. It's that rewiring type sin. It goes deeper. I need you to get in there and fix me. God, I need, to do, I need you to do what only you can do. That's why in that passage, David is doing nothing. He's saying, God, clean me. God, wash me. God, save me. God, purify me. God, renew me. God, restrain. It's all God. David's doing nothing. He's just asking. So here's what I guess I'm trying to say about your sin. You don't need a good night's sleep. You don't need better habits. You don't need a better accountability partner. Like, here's what I'm saying about our sin problem. We need God to fix us. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says this, contrary to what many say today, our deliverance or salvation does not arise out of the murky human depths from which our natural life springs. But Jesus moves into and through those very depths. Whatever they contain, however messy, whatever mistake, to bring us home to God, there too he is master in control. The spiritual renovation and the spirituality that comes from Jesus is nothing less than an invasion of natural human reality by a supernatural life from above. Here's what Dallard Willis is saying. You need fixing and only God can do it. And that's what Jesus can do. He can move into your mistakes and he can begin to make things right. David asks for God's grace according to his passion, seeing he's broken. Let me ask you this, church, today. What do you need? All of the things that David listed. I, everyone walked in here in different walks of life, and I know this. So let me ask you this. What do you need? Restoration, renewal, purity, sustaining, a sustaining spirit. Do you need something created anew in your life? What if we finally just got to the end of ourselves and just were like, I can't do it. God, help. Be gracious to me. That's what David asks for, but then he asks for something really weird in verse 7. He says this, verse 7. Verse 7, he says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face from my sins and blot out all my guilt. Purify me with hyssop. It's weird. I don't know what that is. So I had to look it up. Hyssop. It's this, it's this branch. It's this kind of like bushy thing that was used medicinally for purification purposes. And uh, God actually created laws for those who were unclean, those who were diseased, actually to be restored into community after there was this miraculous healing that oftentimes they would see that God would heal someone with like a sickness or a disease like leprosy that's incurable. 
a disease that was eating them from the inside out. One of the, the ceremonies they would do if they experienced healing was to be brought to the temple and to be washed with hyssop. And what they would do is they would take this hyssop branch that was, uh, had like purified qualities to it and cleansing pro- qualities to it. They would take that and then they would dip it in the blood of an animal that was sacrificed for them. And they would take it and they would sprinkle it on the person who was riddled with disease in the past. And from this process, they would do it seven times and they would be restored into community. This is what David is saying about this process. God, I have a disease, wash me from my sin. I need you to provide the sacrifice for my guilt, my sin, and I need you to wash me. I need you to sprinkle me with the blood of an animal, with hyssop. I need to be purified. I need, to, I need you to take a branch and soak it in sacrificial blood, and I need you to cover me so that I might be clean. I might be made new. Truth is, all of us, like we've said, are stricken with a disease, much worse than leprosy. But sin, brokenness, and we have no cure for it. Like I said, we can't fix it, and we need God to. And the good news about our unique brokenness is God sent his son, his savior, Jesus. God himself steps down from his high palace, not to bring havoc, but to bring healing. And he comes and his perfect righteous son who never sinned once, lived a holy life obedient to the father, came to save sinners and this is how he did it. God takes the branches of a tree and soaks it in sacrificial blood to sprinkle it on disease-riddled people. And anyone who would come and kneel before the cross of Jesus Christ where the Savior was sacrificed and believed in him for the forgiveness of sins would be covered and washed new. This, the cross is our hyssop soaked in sacrificial blood. And like verse 9 says, if you look at verse 9 where David says, turn your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. This is what God does in the cross when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. God turns away from your sin and looks to Jesus on the cross carrying your sin. And then he looks to you like he used to look at his son, righteous, redeemed, perfect, holy, because you are covered in the hyssop, soaked, sacrificial blood branch. This is the cross and it stands as our place for healing. And some of you need that today for the first time, and some of you need it again. So here is my cry to you. Yell out for mercy. Ask God for mercy according to his compassion, seeing that you're actually broken and can't fix it. And when you do this, one final thing, as you ask God for grace, K, knowing God still uses broken people. Knowing God can still use broken people. Let's finish the rest of our verse Verse 12 says this, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving a willing spirit. Then, if you do that, Lord, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Here's what's true as you walk in here this morning. Maybe 
Maybe you wish you could relive a moment. Take back a word, take back a thought, take back an action, a night, a week, years, a relationship. I, I'm not sure. Here's what I'm hearing from David that doesn't really make sense to me. David didn't want to lose his past. He just asked God to use it. He didn't want to lose his past. He just asked that God would actually use his past. And he prays. He says, God, if you restore me, I will open up my lips and I will teach future generations. Here's, here's what I'm asking you today to do and to believe. I'm asking you, don't change the lyrics. David, as he wrote Psalm 51, honest, brutal about himself, what I love that David didn't do was afterwards go back and change the lyrics of the song. He didn't erase the parts of his life that he didn't like. In fact, he, he, didn't, he didn't try to delete it. Here's what David did. He highlighted it. I'm asking you, don't, maybe, maybe don't pray that God would lose your past, but maybe that God would use your brokenness to point to the beauty of the gospel, of the grace of Jesus Christ. David's past now has a purpose, and I'm just saying yours can too. My past can point others to return to God and to Christ and to run to Jesus. And in fact, that's all I want my life to be. Like, all I want my life to be is to stand up and just tell people, you can run home to God. I don't care who you are. You can run home to God because I could run home to God in my sin. As much as I tried to build up this house of perfection and then when it all came crumbling down, God was there in the person of Jesus Christ to welcome me. Do you know how David is remembered in Scripture? A man after, after God's own heart. Are you kidding me? Like that's how David gets remembered? This guy? The guy who murdered? Commits adultery, maybe worse? And, and we read over scripture and we think, Israel's best king, man after God's own heart. How in the world? But here's why David is called a man after God's own heart. It's not because he's perfect. It's not because he was like a preacher or anything. It's not because he's like this perfect little Christian. That's not why David is a man after God's own heart. David is called a man after God's own heart. Because when he broke God's heart, it broke his. And he didn't run from God, he ran to him. And God was able to restore and redeem all that was lost because David just ran to God persistently. This is why he writes this in verse 16, the closing verses. You do not want to sacrifice God or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You do not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifice, whole burnt offerings. 
then bulls will be offered to your altar. What is it that God desires in this kingdom? Perfect people, religious people, no. People who have a broken heart for God. This is what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. Let me ask you this. What does it look like for you to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? What does it look like for us to be a church? What, what would it look like for our church? As people talked about our church, they would say, that is a church after God's own heart. What if we lived our lives asking for grace according to his compassion? We walked into this room and we said, God, I know who you are. You'll forgive me. If we would see our brokenness and the depths of it and we would run to God in prayer and help and community around here and the Bible, just dependent on that, what if we knew that God could still use broken people like us and all of those around us? What if we were that type of community? I think we can be. What if we were people like Jesus tells about in Luke chapter 18? Or is it 16? I can't remember. But um, Jesus tells this here. Is it Luke 18? That's right. I had it right. Summer B. Jesus tells a story. It says this. He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Fast twice a week, give a tenth of everything I am. But the tax collector, this man that he was pointing to, standing afar off, Jesus says this, he would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We heard this verse before. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one, the one who prayed like that, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. One who humbles himself will be exalted. What if we lived like that? Asking God according to his compassion, seeing that we are broken, beating our chest, knowing that God still in his good mercy and grace can use us. Let's pray. Yeah, God, would we come right now? I pray every person in here would come to you, including myself, Lord Jesus, with whatever we have, whatever we've done, whatever lies behind us and before us. I pray that we walk into this room every single Sunday singing this song, God, be gracious to me, a sinner. God, have mercy on us me. Change me, wash me, restore me, cleanse me, renew me, save me. God be gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to continue to worship and sing songs to Jesus, thinking about this grace that he had on, thinking about this mercy, this, compa this compassion. And like I said earlier, Songs have power, and so we sing words, and we're, what we're doing is we're singing them into our own heart. And you're singing for the person next to you who needs to hear it. So we're gonna continue in worship here in a second, but we're also gonna continue to, to worship by entering into a time of communion. And what communion is, it's a symbol that Jesus gave his closest friends and followers the day before he goes to the cross. 
and is given over as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he's at this meal and he gives them this picture and this is the picture. He takes bread and he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. And then he hands them a cup of wine. We've got some grape juice up here because that seems like a better idea. And he gives them a, a cup of wine and he says, this is my blood spilt for you. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So as we enter into a time of taking communion, if you are man, a follower of Christ, if you're like, that's me, I need grace, need compassion, I need Jesus. I need what he did for me on that cross. I need to be washed. I need the hyssop soaked in blood. I need the thing that's gonna heal me and that's Jesus. This is what this meal represents. And we take this. So let's come to him. He's the only one who can change us, save us, heal us. Amen. Let's worship.